Good morning. How y'all doing today? John. I'm doing well. My wife and I are pregnant. We're pretty excited about that. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good thing. Um, is it a boy or a girl? Well, uh, you know, Brian, when you, when you just find out you're pregnant, uh, usually... Oh, what do you want, a boy or a girl? Okay. <laughs> uh, hey, I'll, I'll take whatever the Lord gives. That sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. Hey, how many of you have been to the Orange County Fair? Raise your hand if you've been to the fair yet. All right. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I got, I got a chance to go to the fair last night, uh, yesterday, and, and, uh, and we had a great time. You know, uh, we, we, Casey and I and, and Bennett and some friends, we went to the fair and we went on the rides and, and we, we watched some shows and we ate a bunch of food and you guys, you, you know fair food, right? You know food at the fair? Uh, it's, it's not always the, the, the greatest kind of food now, is it? Not exactly, right? Well, it, it, it's interesting to me that they call the food at the fair, uh, that they, 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 they call these, these, these places where you walk up to eat, they call them concession stands. Concession stands. And it almost sounds like they're conceding the fact that the food is going to be terrible for you. You know what I mean? It's a concession stand. They're, they're, they're saying, you know, this food is not very good. It's not very healthy for you, but, but boy, you're going to like it. So come get some. You know, there's three things that, I, that come to mind when I think of a concession stand. Uh, first, the people selling the food, right? They know that the food is very, very unhealthy for you. They know it's detrimental to your health to eat this fair food. Secondly about a concession stand is we also know that the people who walk up to a concession stand, all of them who are walking up to get uh, cotton candy or to get that funnel cake or to get that ice cream sundae, all of them walking up know unilaterally that the food they're about to purchase is probably going to be bad for them. So the people who sell it know it's bad for them. The people who buy it know it's bad for them. And yet everybody wants it, right? Right. In our story in Mark today, in our continuation in the Gospel of Mark, we are going to encounter a situation in which God knows something is unhealthy for you, in which you know something is unhealthy for you, but in which our culture has adopted and embraced as something they want a whole, that they want for themselves as a part of their culture. Today we're going to be talking about the issue of divorce in Mark chapter 10. And the issue of divorce is such that God knows it's bad for you, you know it's bad for you, and yet our society, just taking a look at our marriage rate, which is usually around 50%, 50% of marriages end in divorce, yet our culture thrives on divorce. Our culture wants divorce. We seek it out. We look for it. We look for an excuse to get divorced. But God looks at divorce like a concession. God looks at divorce like a concession stand for that matter. He knows it's unhealthy for you. And you know it's unhealthy for you. The title of my message today is Divorce, a Divine Concession. 
divorce, a divine concession. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 1 and go to verse 12. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and going on to verse 12 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. It says this, Then he, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses, he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of your hardness, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked Jesus again about the same matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, uh, we, we're dealing with a sensitive issue here uh, this morning. And we need Your help. Father, we need Your Spirit to guide us and to lead us as we consider the, the topic of divorce. Uh, Father, it is a topic that is rampant in our culture. Um, it's rampant in the Christian culture, Father. If the statistics are correct, half of those in this room um, who are married have been divorced. And yet, Lord, we, we need to approach this issue and find Your counsel on it. We need to approach this issue and find Your wisdom on this matter. Father, we need to learn what it means to have a biblical marriage. And we pray that, that this day that You would show that to us. That we might show it to our culture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 again. Verses 1 and 2 of Mark chapter 10 says this, Then He, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes, a crowd, gathered to Him again as He was accustomed, and He taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? Now, Mark gives some indication as to where we are in, in the geography here, right? In verse 1, he indicates that, uh, that, they, that they have gone uh, outside of the, of the region of Caesarea Philippi, which, which they largely spent time in, in Mark chapter 9, which is just outside of the northern boundaries of Israel. And they're starting to make their way uh, east across the northern face of Israel and down through the Jordan. In particular, and this is important, they're entering the region of King Herod Antipas. They're entering the region of King Herod Antipas. Now, why is that significant? Why is that significant? Well, you see, the last time in the Gospel of Mark, King Herod Antipas was mentioned, it was indicated that John the Baptist was being put in prison 
for a certain reason. Let's take a look at it. Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. It says this, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now isn't that ironic? Both the geography is the same in Mark 6, 17 and Mark 10, 1. And the issue is the same in Mark 6, 17 and Mark 10, 1. It's not coincidence. This is not happenstance that Jesus happens to be dealing with the issue of divorce in the very region that He's dealing with it in. John had gone to Herod and said, your marriage is unlawful. The Pharisees have come to Jesus and asked, is divorce lawful? Now, we know the story from, from Mark 6. We've already studied it, right? John was ultimately beheaded at the request of Herod's unlawful wife, Herodias, and of her dancing daughter, Salome. Tom Constable writes this concerning uh, the relationship between these texts. He says, perhaps the Pharisees wanted to get Jesus to explain his view of divorce because they suspected it was the same as John the Baptist's. John had lost his head literally because of his views on marriage. Probably Jesus' critics hoped that he would also antagonize the Roman ruler with his views. See, the Pharisees' friends are bringing up this question. I would suspect they held this question in their back pocket, waiting, just waiting for Jesus to re-enter the region of King Herod Antipas and to bring up the question yet again. Now, the issue at hand here is not on what, is not on what grounds may a person divorce. That's not the issue in Mark 10. The issue, according to the question of the Pharisees, is, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Period. And Jesus, as He so often does, answers their question with another question. Take a look at verse 3. And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. As one, uh, as one scholar put it, uh, Jesus asks in terms of commandments and the Pharisees respond in terms of permission. Jesus frames the question in terms of what did Moses command? And the Pharisees, the Pharisees respond to that question by offering what Moses permitted. Certainly not what Moses commanded. Where are they getting this... Uh, where are they getting this perspective from Moses? They're getting it from Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I want to read it together with you. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 through 4 is where, what the Pharisees are citing in support of their view that, that divorce is lawful. And it says this in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no, no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness, which, which by and large means sexual immorality, some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, 
if that latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, notice where the command is, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You see, friends, the Pharisees, I don't, I don't want to go into detail as to the stipulations of this precept in the Old Testament. That's not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is the Pharisees are suggesting in Mark 10, verse 3, verse 4, excuse me, they are suggesting in verse 4 of Mark 10 that Moses here in Deuteronomy 24 is permitting divorce. Moses is doing none of the sort. Jesus is asking, what does Moses have to command about it? And they say, well, he, he permits it. And they cite this and Jesus is looking at this going, what, where's the command? Where's the command that, that makes divorce lawful? And they say, well, it's at the top there. Uh, you know, uh, there's a permission there. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, neither commands nor permits divorce. The only, command, <clears throat> the only command found in this portion of Scripture comes in verse 4. And it's a command that forbids remarrying your former spouse if you've entered into another marriage covenant beforehand. There is no command here in Deuteronomy 24 concerning divorce. Neither will you find it in any of the Scriptures. Uh, it's quite likely, as, I, as I've studied this issue throughout uh, this last week, it's quite likely that this portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy 24 is, is uh, a lot less to do with divorce per se and a lot more to do with the woman who is divorced. And you say, what do you mean? Well, back in the days of the ancient Near East, a woman who was divorced was extremely vulnerable. A woman and her children, if they were divorced from her husband, were extremely vulnerable. And the reason was, is because the male in that culture unilaterally provided the economic support for the family. And when she was divorced from her husband, for whatever the reason, that woman and her children became extremely vulnerable to poverty, to hunger, to, 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 to just dropping off uh, the, 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 the face of the social status there. They would become a very inferior group of people if they were divorced. And it is probably the case that Moses here is offering regulation, Moses being inspired by God, is offering regulation to preserve the status of women and to help them in a time of need. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, in the Jewish Mishnah, which is written about 200 years after the time of Christ, Jewish Mishnah is oral commentary that, that they've recorded about Jewish tradition. In, in the Jewish Mishnah, in the section of Gittin, which is the bills of divorce, they actually indicate what is written on a certificate of divorce in the ancient Near East. And you know what's written on it? It's written that you are free to marry any man. 
the certificate is directed toward the woman. The man writes her the certificate and he gave it to her. And on that certificate, it, was literally, it would literally read, you are free to marry any man. It is quite likely, friends, that what's going on in Deuteronomy 24 is God's attempt to preserve the woman and her children in the event that her husband divorced her. And I emphasize that her husband divorced her because you see, back in that culture, it was unlawful for a wife to divorce her husband. She couldn't do it. She wasn't able to even file a divorce back in those days. She wasn't able to, for for any reason, no matter what her husband did, she was not able to go before uh, the, the court, if you will, and to seek a divorce from her husband. It just wasn't possible in Jewish culture. Now back to the situation at hand. Jesus has asked the Pharisees for a ruling from Moses on the issue of divorce. And they've offered Jesus a section of the Mosaic Law that hardly amounts to a divine command concerning divorce. Not only does Deuteronomy 24 offer little help to this question of the lawfulness of divorce, but Jesus is now going to go on to make a strong statement as to, what portion, as to why that portion of the law even exists. Jesus is now going to say in verse 5 why that portion of the law even exists. And notice what He says in verse 5. He says this, Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you Moses wrote you this precept, this provision. In effect, Jesus is saying here, the only reason Moses said what he did in Deuteronomy 24 is because your ancestors were hard-hearted. They divorced at the drop of a hat. Whenever they grew tired or disenfranchised with their wife, They manipulatively sought out any excuse they could find to write up a certificate of divorce. And in so doing, they abandoned their wife and their children and exposed them to great vulnerability. Moses said what he did because the men of Israel had hearts like stones. Moses said what he did because the men of Israel were already divorcing their wives left and right. And Moses was compelled to bring some sense of order to the chaos. Ben Witherington writes this. He says, Jesus seems to suggest that the Mosaic provision was meant to limit a problem, not license a practice that in essence goes against God's original intentions for marriage. You see, Deuteronomy 24 was meant to limit the problem, not license the practice. It certainly was no command Allowing divorce. And so needless to say, friends, Jesus is less than impressed with the Pharisees' answer in Mark 10.4. And in verses 6-9, to He's going to go on to quote a portion of Scripture which the Pharisees have overlooked. Let's take a look at Mark 10, verses 6-9. through Let's see Jesus' answer to this question. He says this, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male... And female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus appeals to a source that is a bit higher than Moses. Jesus appeals to the Creator, to God Almighty, to justify His views of the lawfulness of divorce. And in this section in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, Jesus is quoting sections of Genesis 1, 2, and chapter 5 in defense of His perspective. And as we can see, Jesus' view of of the lawfulness of divorce is firmly grounded in how significant of a covenant He views marriage to be. Now, what is He saying about marriage? He's saying a few things, right? He's saying, first, God created them male and female. God created them male and female. Secondly, He says the male, the man is to leave his father and mother and to be joined to his wife. Now, we can quickly gloss over this and say, okay, well, alright, what, what does that have to do with divorce? Friends, the fact that the man is leaving his, his patriarchal family, his father and his mother, and is going toward his wife, seeking out that union, demonstrates that that new marriage covenant, that new marriage creation, when we enter into that covenant, we are entering into a greater covenant a more binding covenant, a more important and more valuable covenant than that of our own family. You know, I often, uh, I often see um, people who have a relationship with their, their, their spouse and their family, but they still look back and say, oh, but boy, I really like going to be with my biological family. Friends, that's backwards. Jesus, God is saying here, no, 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 you leave the old family. Because what you're going to create, the covenant you're going to enter into, is far greater, far more important, far superior. The marriage that is created is exceedingly better than the family from which you've come. That is not to say we neglect our biological family. No, of course, we, we join them. We have vacations with them. We celebrate holidays with them. But they are not as important as this family is. Jesus here is emphasizing what God has said in Genesis that the marriage covenant, there is no greater union. There is no more perfect union on earth than that of the marriage covenant. And the husband and the wife of this newly formed marriage are to become, do become, one flesh. The two become one. And regarding this phrase, and the two shall become one flesh, Witherington again has a a, a great statement to this effect. It seems simplistic, but listen to it. Identify what, uh, try to comprehend what he's saying here. The implication is from verse 8, the two shall become one flesh, is that the one flesh union becomes more constitutive of a man and a woman's being than their uniqueness does. Only two can become one. And when they do, they are no longer two. What Witherington is saying here is that you, when you've entered into marriage, you become more identified with you and your spouse as one 
God looks upon you and sees the two of you as one much more so than He sees you as an individual. The one flesh union becomes more constitutive of a man and a woman's being than their uniqueness does. Only two can become one. And because the two persons have become one, they are no longer.